moments before this broadcast, we have had a major breakthrough that has not only dramatically changed negotiations, but it's going to change the future of our union and the future of our industry. I was told over and over again how this job really grinds their body down. Just the repetitive motion of working on an assembly line, having to move all day long with very few breaks, can lead to all sorts of musculoskeletal disorders. Radio Labor is commemorating the World Day for Decent Work by starting a project to teach English as an additional language lessons, known as ADL lessons. We're doing this because there are thousands of trade unionists who are struggling to learn English in order to better participate in the international labor movement. Most people who are trans have spent a fair amount of time kind of trying to look less trans. You know, that there's a way where I'm like, Mm -hmm. you know, because I could have stopped at the beginning and not done anything physical and just sort of asked for recognition of my identity and my intention. They're not just abstract good values about equality and democracy and internationalism. They're also the uh, guideposts that they're advising to future generations of the union and suggesting that every time we as the ILWU or as the labor movement as a whole have strayed outside of these guidelines, um, have strayed away from principles of democracy and internationalism and so on, labor unity, that that's where we've struggled and that's where we've fallen short. And so long as we've held true to these principles, that's the road to success. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. I'm Chris Garlock. Back from our 200-mile walk on the Thames River path in England. Can't say I'm rested, but I am raring to go. And we've got a great brand new show for you today with clips from Labor Express Radio, America's Workforce Radio, Radio Labor, the Art and Labor Podcast, and the Docker Podcast. By the way, we'll have a longer excerpt from the Docker podcast on this Sunday's Labor History Today podcast, so be sure to check that out. That's all ahead on this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Listen to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only labor news and current affairs radio program. News for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jerry Mead Lucero, and this is the Sunday, October 7th, 2023 edition of Labor Express. It's hard not to be excited about what the UAW strike has seemingly already accomplished. The strike is not won yet, and it's advisable to withhold final judgment until it has. But if the gains continue to grow as the strike enters its fourth week, this very well could turn out to be the most significant strike in this country of the 21st century. It's also hard not to be impressed by the leadership of Sean Fain. GOW President Sean Fain from his latest weekly Facebook Live strike update. It's happened again. Moments before this broadcast, 
we have had a major breakthrough that has not only dramatically changed negotiations, but it's going to change the future of our union and the future of our industry. We were about to shut down GM's largest moneymaker in Arlington, Texas. The company knew those members were ready to walk immediately. And just that threat has provided a transformative win. GM has now agreed in writing to place their electric battery manufacturing under our National Master Agreement. We've been told for months that this is impossible. We've been told the EV future must be a race to the bottom. And now we've called their bluff. What this will mean for our membership cannot be understated. The plan was to draw down engine and transmission plants and permanently re replace them with low-wage battery jobs. We had a different plan and our plan is winning at GM. And we expect it to win at Ford and Stellantis as well. So today, we're gonna to give you some updates on the state of bargaining. If it wasn't clear already, things move fast. It's hard to give an update that won't be obsolete by the time the update's done. So here's a snapshot and a punchline. Here's the snapshot GM has been falling behind. Today, under the threat of a major financial hit, they leapfrogged the pack in terms of a just transition. And here's the punchline. Our strike is working, but we're not there yet. Everything we've done to this point has been with one goal in mind, to win a record contract that reflects the Big Three's record profits and the historic sacrifices our members have made to generate those profits. We've been very public about our demands and about our expectations and about our priorities. Everybody and their brother knows that we've been fighting for economic justice, for a just transition, for cost of living allowance, for meaningful wage increases, for retirement security, to end tears, and to win work-life balance and more. I wish I were here to announce a tentative agreement at one or more of these companies, but I do want to be really clear. We are making significant progress. In just three weeks, we have moved these companies further than anyone thought was possible. Labor Express is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, where we build voices broadcasting worldwide 24 hours a day. Find out more at laborradionetwork.org. The song is our theme is called Worker Songs, written by Ed Pickford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. or Monday at 11 a.m. on 105.5 FM or lumpenradio.com for more Labor Express. <laughs> Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferrens. Let's go to our live line right now and welcome to the show. 
Sarah Lazar. Sarah put together an article for The Nation magazine, Your Body Suffers the Unremarkable Pain of an Auto Assembly Line Worker. Sarah Lazar, thanks for joining us here on America's Workforce today. Thank you so much for having me. You started off with an individual by the name of Daniel Carpenter, who was one month past his 40th birthday when he suffered neck pain so severe he thought he was having a stroke. Um, <laughs> when I read that, I'm saying, wow, this job really is pretty darn difficult. Can you, uh, can you give us some details? The interesting thing about his story is how unremarkable it is. The thing that made me want to look into this issue is actually before September 14th, before UAW started their stand-up strike, I went to a practice picket at the Chicago Assembly Plant, which is run by Ford. It was outside of the UAW Union Hall, Local 551. And almost every worker I talked to said that they have pain. It ranged from annoying aches to serious back problems. I was told over and over again how this job really grinds your body down. Just the repetitive motion of working on the assembly line, having to move all day long with very few breaks can lead to all sorts of musculoskeletal disorders. And the thing about these disorders is that, you know, they can range from aches and pains to, you know, rotator cuff injuries, you know, and problems that can be harbingers of really serious uh, problems down the line. But they lack some of the shock value of other injuries. You know, they're not amputations. And because Mm -hmm. of that, they're much more difficult to count. Um, You know, the experts I talked to said that they thought that the OSHA data was a little unreliable because there there are so many factors that can lead someone to not reporting an injury as workplace-related, including fear of retaliation. But what you really find is that these kinds of injuries can uh, really erode quality of life both at work and outside of work. And so it felt important to me to tell this story because we're talking about auto workers. This is one of the top news stories in the country right now, but I don't actually feel that there's been enough conversation about what they actually do and the toll that, that their work yeah. takes. I'm just wondering here, has this been going on a lot in recent years? And I- so I can't point to any definitive data saying, yes, this is objectively increasing, you know, over a certain time decades ago. But what I can say is that workers have repeatedly complained about having to work long hours, mandatory overtime, not having enough time off. And that's where some of the demands of the UAW uh, stand-up strike really come in, is one of the key factors that determines your ability to recover from injuries and take care of your body when working on an assembly line or a distribution center is simply being able to rest. Um, Another factor to consider, I spoke with a source at UAW who said, Some contractually protected programs have suffered from concessions, just like we've seen with wages and other provisions. So the big three automakers used to have full-time ergonomics representatives who were appointed by the union and paid by the company. But according to that source, sometime after 2006, those ergonomics jobs were actually combined with other responsibilities. So as a result, there are no longer full-time positions that are solely dedicated to ergonomics. And that source believes that that has reduced the responses to injuries and complaints. 
concludes another episode of the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com. This is Radio Labor. October 7th is the World Day for Decent Work. It's a day set aside to remind people of the need for a living wage, safe workplaces, labor unions, and more. It calls for productive working conditions of freedom, equity, security, and human dignity. All over the world, labor unions celebrate the day by holding rallies, organizing conferences, and starting new projects to help working people. Thousands of union activists representing millions of workers participate. Millions. For example, the global unions, which represent sectors such as public services and transport workers, together represent 170 million unionized workers. Radio Labor is commemorating the World Day for Decent Work by starting a project to teach English as an additional language lessons, known as ADL lessons. We're doing this because there are thousands of trade unionists who are struggling to learn English in order to better participate in the international labor movement. The movement tries its best to provide its members with content in languages other than English, but 75% of the world's population speaks 20 languages, and the movement can't support them all. Meanwhile, 70% of the world's websites are in English. It is only fair that trade unionists who are not mother tongue English be supported in their efforts to learn the language as they try to participate in their labor movement. The lessons will include an audio newscast, the English script translated into many languages, and an English lesson. This week, our top story section included links to the news that Jude Thaddeus Fernandez, an organizer with the KMU in the Philippines, was killed by police last week. Jude was the 72nd organizer killed in that country in suspicious circumstances since 2016. Other top stories this week included Education International's conclusion that the worldwide shortage of teachers is threatening the right to an education for millions of children. The start of an historic walkout by 70,000 healthcare workers in the United States and an update on the ongoing legal harassment directed at union leaders in Lebanon. Now here is Manuela Estudillo with My Accent. Is it my accent? Because my hazel eyes and white thick thighs don't tell the story that my appearance hides? Is it my accent? Or is it the dust on my face? What dust, you ask? The one that seeped through my skin when I tried to rush in, all tight in the back of an illegal coyote car for 40 days with no water, no food, no air, and no way out. And just when I thought I had gotten somewhere, yes, I tell you somewhere because as a fact, I was in the middle of nowhere. I stepped out of that dark, dirty hole, and they took advantage. They took it all. They took my dignity, my identity, my money, but not my accent. And with this accent, I travel a journey from nowhere to somewhere to find the future that was stolen from my ancestors by the government of my new country. And even though that in this country, some of you still laugh at me because instead of saying party, I end up saying patty, I have an accent and I recognize it. 
But here my people don't want their accents. They hide their culture and erase their past. They change their color to blind their eyes. But I have an accent. And even though that I can change my long curly brown hair to blonde and change the color of my eyes to green, blue, brown, pink, or red, I don't. No, I won't. And so I'll fight to protect the roots of my race through night and through day because I have an accent. And that's it. Labor news you can use. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Art and Labor. We are... um uh, the podcast uh, dedicated to the ongoing struggle to survive as an art and or cultural worker. Um, my name is OK Fox, and I'm joined by Jackie S. Hi, Jackie. Hey, what's up? You wrote a fucking sick book called Daryl that I fucking loved. And uh, it was so cool to uh, meet you randomly at the store. Um <laughs> Because, uh, yeah, I really liked that book. It was great. Thanks. I think I first encountered your work in Kay Gabriel's uh, and uh, Andrea Combi-Crom's We Want It All. And so the Trans Poetry Anthology, that came out in 2020, and then Daryl came out in 2021, and it was really, really well-received. And it's just awesome to me that I, I... I can recommend it to people and it's like so easy to read too, like in like the kind of diary format and the quick chapters. Like, like I don't, like like I'm functionally illiterate because I like comic books. Like I I mostly read, like I'm like addicted to pictures and images. So like I I have to like, I like when I'm reading fiction, I prefer comics and I do read theory and not, and history and stuff. But like, it's (laughs) like, I'm not like, I'm really not, in the like I don't know anything about novels I don't know anything about shit but I do think it's interesting that we're in a time where like trans authors are like on this huge up it's kind of nuts to me yeah I'm seeing that happen a little bit and uh I don't know it's going to take a while to see kind of what it all means I'm interested in trans liberation and queer liberation but like kind of more for like everybody um not as a like this is the type of work I do or something I don't know. Well, I mean, I do think that there is a little bit of tension in being a trans artist because I do think that trans is a like a self-erasing category. Um, for the most part, you know, like they're like most people who are trans have spent a fair amount of time kind of trying to look less trans, you know, that there's a way where I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, because I could have stopped at the beginning and not done anything physical and just sort of ask for recognition of my identity and my intention and these are my name this is my name these are my pronouns or something like that Mm -hmm. and I could have had like a more kind of like I don't know uh just like a more challenging embodiment you know like I know and or I could have been a person who's like I want you to like have to think about what pronouns you use when you talk to me or something like that and I know a lot of people that are into that kind of gender fucky kind of approach yeah actually one of the first trans people I met was like this and you know um, changed pronouns all the time and was like really into, um, kind of like, uh, uh, the, the dispute about the, whether black should have a capital B and would write it Whoa. like capital B slash lowercase B black and was, was really into this idea that like, um, 
you know, like really surfacing the conflicts in language. And yeah. so like nobody kind of really gets to feel like they're getting it right. Um, and, uh, you know, I can now flatten this out and say they, but actually I probably would have said he at some times and she at other times. That's um, really, it's bold and brave and, and cool, honestly, to, to be that like, it's, it's like a, it's a confrontation. Like every time you have to fucking talk to somebody. So when I think about being like a trans artist or something like that, yeah, it's really a little bit, uh, doubtful to me like you know how much do I want to talk about being trans in public or in what spaces like it's not a secret yeah um, but I, I wonder about like what that's going to mean for that category especially as we get like more of a critical mass of like you know people who transitioned really young and so they like, they really live lives where they don't have to talk about it in the same way well thank you let's have fun out there everyone we will do. Bye bye. lots of fun let's have fun Let's have fun, let's have fun, lots of fun. Then the police started pushing us back to the intersection of Mission and Stewart Streets just off the waterfront. When the police car arrived and shots were fired, two men lay dead. Micah. Yes. Here we are. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> uh, okay, so I haven't done one of these introductions in a really long time. Uh, this is the Docker podcast. Uh, Dan and the other usual suspects aren't here. You got Zach Patton, he, him, from Local 23 in Tacoma, Washington. And you got Micah Dubay, they, them, from Local 5 in Portland, Oregon. And we're here at the Young Workers Conference on the 10th anniversary of the first one at the Maritime Labor Center in Vancouver, BC. Uh, on the first day, we got to lead uh, a workshop that we called uh, Weapons of the Boss, Racism and Anti-Trans Discrimination. We had a discussion, really. We didn't just like present. like We sat up on the stage, but like in a conversational format, and talked about how uh, the history of these 10 guiding principles came to be. Um, and then like how that ties into not just like the work that we do as union organizers and union members within like our contracts and our unions, but how that like really applies more broadly to social justice issues and that uh, we have to consider all of these different pieces in order to make truly like a better working class <laughs> and, take, and take down the ruling class. Yeah. The 10 guiding principles were first... <clears throat> um, were first delivered at the union's 1953 um, 10th Biennial Convention in San Francisco. Uh, that one was like a really big deal. 1953 is both the 20th anniversary of the organizing drive that rebuilt Pacific Coast Longshore unionism. Um, it's on the eve of the 20th anniversary of the 34 strike itself. Uh, I forgot to mention this the other day, but it's actually also the centennial of the first effort to 
organized longshoremen in San Francisco all the way back in 1853. Wow. Yeah. Um, so lots of, <laughs> lots of historical uh, things to commemorate and celebrate. There is this concern, right, that all of the accumulated knowledge and the oral history um, that could be passed on between, you know, from one worker to another was potentially going to be lost. And so some of the conversations that led to this idea about writing down and declaring and, you know, enshrining these 10 guiding principles, um, they're not just abstract good values about equality and democracy and internationalism. They're those things too, but they're also a reflection of the concrete experiences that this founding generation went through. And they say that in the uh, uh, in the report of the officers to the convention, they talk about how they're the distillation and the summary of these experiences, but that they're also the uh, guideposts that they're advising to future generations of the union and suggesting that every time we as the ILWU or as the labor movement as a whole have strayed outside of these guidelines, um, have strayed away from principles of democracy and internationalism and so on, labor unity, that that's where we've struggled and that's where we've fallen short. And so long as we've mm -hmm. held true to these principles, that's the road to success. Things like really, really start to heat up um, after the passage of the Taft-Hartley Act, right, which in 1947 is um, a congressional like reaction to the 1946 strike wave, especially in like rail and coal and like a bunch of other industries. The National Guard is brought in to like break strikes, and there's this you know there's this backlash against organized labor. The Republicans regain control of Congress, and one of like the major things they do is force through the Taft-Hartley Act, and so Taft-Hartley came in with a bunch of things, like it uh, outlawed wildcat strikes, it outlawed sympathy strikes, it outlaws secondary boycotts. Uh, the classic line, right, is that it took away like everything that like worked. That's a great way to put it, yeah. Like what the Taft-Hartley Act fundamentally does is uh, outlaw solidarity in like a lot of It makes of us each forms. stand on our own. <laughs> right. And so one of those things too was isolating um, and persecuting people with left-wing ideals and politics. This question about uh, communism or alleged membership or um, being dictated by the party like really comes to a head, especially at the 1949 convention when the United Electrical Workers and the Farm Equipment Workers um, are thrown out of the CIO. And then over the next year, um, up until August 28th, 1950, that's like the last of the 11 expulsions. And that's when our union, the ILWU, the National Union of Marine Cooks and Stewards and the Fishermen's Union, the three of the maritime unions, are finally thrown out in the summer of that year, and that's that. And so by 1955, eight of those 11 unions have ceased to exist. The only two of those unions that survived this um, purge is the United Electrical Workers, UE. Also, shout out to you all if any one of you are listening. Uh, congratulations on all of your successful organizing of grad students and yeah, your yeah, successful yeah. convention <laughs> just a couple weeks ago, um, and the ILWU. And so we're the only two unions that made it out alive. We are unique in the fact that we are the only one that was actually able to hold on to our core jurisdiction in yeah. Longshore and growing, you know, and especially with the organizing drives in Hawaii. Um, and yeah, maintaining our density in like Longshore, um, you know, to the, we did okay. <laughs> um, and anyway, and so what I'm saying about all this that I think is important to consider as well, 1953 
in a lot of ways is this very celebratory moment, you know, like we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of the 1934 West Coast Waterfront Strike. It's the 20th anniversary of the organizing drive that gave like birth to the LW ultimately when we officially became the LW on August 11th, 1937. But it's also very much kind of like a dark time. And I, I have to imagine that our founders were unsure if we were going to make it another two years yeah. until our next convention in 1955. Because like I said, like eight of those unions uh, didn't. Gone. They were gone, <laughs> you know. And so, I don't know. I've always had like a very particular reading of like the 10 guiding principles that in a way they're kind of a time capsule. They are. In this with this thought in the back of people's heads that it's like, maybe our union won't be around in another two years, but if, and if we're not, I at least want to leave something behind to say like, this is who we were and this is what we yeah. stood for and it's something worth These being proud of. These are principles worth of. dying for. You know, <laughs> maybe. Thank you everybody for listening. Uh, shout out to all of you young worker delegates. Uh, congratulations to all the delegates, uh, past and present, yeah. both of keeping this thing going for... 10 years and I'm so impressed with everyone at this convention or conference like they're the energy is phenomenal (laughs) our union's future is in good hands we got we got some good people the kids are doing all right the kids are all right (laughs) (laughs) all right we're out of here That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. As I mentioned at the top, we'll have a longer excerpt of the Docker Podcast on this Sunday's Labor History Today podcast. And of course, you can hear the complete programs we feature today. Just go to laborradionetwork.org, where you'll find more than 200 Labor Radio and Podcast shows are all part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. That's laborradionetwork.org, and you can also find them by using the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon and me. I produced the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock urging you to stay active and, of course, stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show.